Our passage this morning is in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Elohi, Elohi lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. There have been many significant events in human history, including the establishment of the Greek city-states, the founding of Rome, the fall of Rome to the barbarians, the Protestant Reformation, the discovery of electricity, World Wars I and II, the invention of Twinkies. (laughs) But the most important event in all of human history, from the beginning to the present, and on into the future, was the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is a cross. It's at the crossroads of history. That's according to the Bible, but it's also true in the world as a whole. It's the most significant event. All of the Old Testament points forward, the sacrifices, the failures of Israel, the prophecies, etc., look forward to God's redemption through the cross. And all the New Testament looks back to the cross as the most important event of all human history. You might say, what about the virgin birth or the resurrection? But if you look at how much ink is given in the New Testament to those different events, far more is given to the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul puts it this way. He says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, he puts it this way. But it may never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The center of Paul's message is the cross. So today, as we're nearing the end of the book of Mark, and we're, we today are focusing on the cross, and the question I want to ask is, what does Mark show us happened at the cross? 
What transpired that made this the most significant event in all of human history? Heavenly Father, as we look together at this passage, as we look at the cross, as we are reminded of the old, old story, our theme and glory, (laughs) may we see it with fresh eyes today as we remind ourselves of what you have done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What happened at the cross? As we walk through the verses, I want to highlight seven different things that resulted, that happened at the cross. Verse 33, again, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. First event we see is that creation was shaken. As Jesus hung on the cross from about noon till three o'clock, that's the sixth hour uh, in the Jewish reckoning, 6 a.m. was the first hour, and then the sixth hour would be noon, and then the ninth hour would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So from noon to 3 o'clock, the sky was darkened in the middle of the day. Now, this couldn't have been a solar eclipse because in the Passover period, this was the Passover, right? It's always a full moon. The moon's in the wrong part of the sky for this to be any kind of a natural phenomenon. It couldn't have been a solar eclipse. This was something supernatural. Something happened to creation. Creation was shaken when God himself hung on the cross. It's reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1 in the chaos. Verse 2, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. You see, in that pre-creation chaos of Genesis chapter 1, God had not stepped in and all of creation was waiting for God to move, to bring order out of the chaos and bring light out of the darkness. He did that. He created. He formed all of creation into this beautiful, wonderful creation He gave us. But, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, man sinned. And we're told in chapter 3 that the result is that all of creation brings thorns and thistles. It's not right. It's twisted. Romans chapter 8 puts it this way, verse 19 and following. Romans chapter 8, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, all of creation responds to what's going on in the spiritual realms. It was subject to disruption and corruption when we sinned. So when Jesus hung on the cross, the creation responded. Right now, creation is waiting redemption, awaiting to be set right. Mosquitoes, viruses, cancer are all part of the fallen, corrupted world. (laughs) But Jesus on the cross, the co-creator of the universe, when he hung there, the creation was plunged again into pre-creation darkness. All creation mourns. Creation was shaken. Secondly, Jesus was forsaken. Verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, 
Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing from all eternity before the creation of time had had perfect harmony, perfect unity, a oneness that exceeds anything we can imagine. John, in the book of John, he records Jesus's prayer in John 17 and verse 24. Jesus prays this, Father, I desire that they also, speaking of us, whom you've given me, be with me where I am so they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me, Father, before the foundation of the world. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit had perfect unity from all eternity. But now the Father has forsaken Jesus. There's a separation in this perfect relationship. None of us have perfect relationships, but we know what it's like to have a division in someone you love dearly. Here, sin always divides, and God is holy and perfect. And Jesus has taken our sin on himself. In fact, the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, he says that Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus not just took on sin like an overcoat that he just wore to the cross. No, he became sin in a way that we don't even understand. He became sin. He, t- he was made to be sin, taking our sins on the cross so that a holy God could not be in relationship with him. Jesus is feeling for the first time the full weight of sin and is abandoned on the cross. One of the psychological theories they're talking about now that really has an impact on our lives is attachment theory. Our recent marriage book, Marriage Conference, How We Love, is based on attachment theory, how, how you attach in your early relationships, especially with your parents, affects your psychological well-being. Your mental health comes from that attachment to significant others in your lives and abandonment creates emotional scars. Jesus is being abandoned by his father. Now, some have said, well, yeah, but for Jesus, it was only three days. But see, we don't understand the mystery of this because, you see, God and Jesus dwell in eternity. In a very real sense, this was an eternal separation, a a way that we don't understand. Because of that, it was horrible. Most of us have had a taste of abandonment, of separation, but nothing like Jesus is experiencing here. The pain of the separation from his father. So how does Jesus deal with his pain, this forsakenness, this separation? He asks, why? Why? Now, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus know why he was on the cross? Yeah, he did. He knew. (laughs) He chose it. But the human in Jesus, being fully man, fully God, the human in Jesus is crying out like we always cry in suffering, right? Why? We want to find meaning. 
in our suffering. We wonder if we deserve this. We cry out, why? And Jesus, in some very real sense, enters into the pain of not knowing, of being an innocent sufferer. We long for our suffering to have some meaning. We want to see the purpose, so we cry out, why? And Jesus here shows that he understands the struggles of our heart when we suffer and we wonder about it and we question it and we get angry and we long to find some meaning in the midst of it. But notice what that tells us. We are never alone in our suffering. Jesus has been through it in a way that is so profound and so deep, far deeper than we are even experiencing, that we can know he understands. The mother of a dead or lost child who cries out, Why? The one who just found out they or a loved one have cancer and who cries out, Why? And on and on, fill in the blank. Jesus understands and walks with us in our suffering. He does not exempt himself from our suffering. In fact, he takes on our suffering. And then as we suffer, he walks through it with us. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, Psalm 23 tells us, yet I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He goes with us. But notice, God doesn't answer why. The cross doesn't answer why in our suffering. But it does answer who. (laughs) Who understands? Who goes with us in our suffering? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So how does Jesus deal with the suffering? First, he cries out why. But notice, he cries to the Father. He prays in his Suffering, He doesn't turn away from God, even though the Father has in some sense forsaken him and turned away from him. Jesus turns to the Father and says, My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? It's a reminder that we have to be careful and make sure in our suffering we always turn to God with our questions, with our struggles, with what's going on, not away from him, turn to him. In prayer. And notice what his prayer is. He prays the Psalms. He quotes Psalm 22 1, a great psalm about David's suffering and struggle with a God who doesn't do what he thinks he should do. He, let me read a few verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I have no rest. As David cries out to a a God he doesn't understand. So Jesus takes those very words on his lips and prays them back to the Father. You see, the Psalms enter into suffering like no other book, other than perhaps Job, I suppose, um, in the Bible. All the emotions of life, not just suffering, but all the emotions of life are reflected in the Psalms in a way that nothing else can. The Psalms give voice to our hearts, both good and bad, both happy and painful. Are you suffering? Read and pray the Psalms like Jesus does. Are you rejoicing? 
Read and pray the Psalms. Are you bored? (laughs) Read and pray the Psalms. So creation was shaken. Jesus was forsaken. But in the midst of this, the world was mistaken. Verse 35 and 36. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, "Ah, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. The bystanders completely misunderstood his cry. Aloy, aloy, lama, sabachthani. They thought he's calling for Elijah. See, Elijah in Jewish tradition was, of course, that great prophet who didn't die. Right? He was taken up by God in a whirlwind. And so according to Jewish tradition, if Elijah would only show up when you're suffering, when you're in pain, he might rescue out of it so you wouldn't have to die. And so they think that's what Jesus is doing here. Get me out of this mess, Father. They didn't get it. They didn't understand that Jesus chose to be there. Love for you and for me kept him on that cross. He knew what he was doing. He stayed there to die for our sins. The world has misunderstood the cross of Christ ever since. The world says things like, ah, God could never die. That doesn't make sense. Who wants a God like that? How could God suffer for us? We can take care of ourselves. Christianity is just a crutch. The cross, that doesn't make sense. Of course, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as he talks about how the world views the cross, starting in verse 22, where he writes, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Of God. You see, the cross is foolishness to the world around us. God, the God of the universe, the Creator, on the cross? <laughs> you see, our gods are powerful enough. In the Roman world, of course, they're gods. They had gods for everything. They had so many gods. They had a pantheon of gods. They had gods of the sun and the moon and the weather and the storms and the hail. Fertility, etc., etc. And they thought, our gods are powerful. They give us what we want. We, we don't want a weak God. Foolishness to the world. Of course, for us, we think the same thing. Our world says, yeah, our gods are powerful enough. Money, status, 401ks, power, government, fill in the blank. Our gods are powerful enough. We don't need a God to take care of us. We don't need a God to die for us. The cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. The Old Testament talked a lot about a suffering Messiah, a suffering God, but they didn't like those parts. (laughs) They focused on the God who would come and rescue them from their enemies. But to have a God who would come and die at the very hand of those enemies... Jews couldn't handle that. We will not believe in that kind of God. 
Ever since then, the world has been mistaken about the cross, mistaken about the power of the cross, and God must open our eyes. What happened at the cross? Creation was shaken, Jesus forsaken, the world mistaken. And fourth, Jesus died. Or to follow our pattern, his life was taken. He cried out, it says, verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He cried out and he expired. If you've ever watched someone die, as I have many, many times, they take that last breath. They breathe it out and they're gone. Mark only quotes one of the seven sayings that are recorded in all the Gospels of Jesus on the cross. He doesn't quote his last cry. It is finished, the John records. Or, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, that Luke records. Mark is very simple. He simply focuses on Jesus' death. Yes, Jesus really died, <laughs> Throughout history, people have tried to give other explanations. The Spirit just left Jesus at that point. God couldn't really die, so the man died, but God didn't. Or he only fainted, and he awoke later in the tomb. Of course, the spear in the side proves that isn't true. Or he was the Spirit who only appeared to die, because God is spiritual, and so it couldn't have been actually physical And he couldn't have died physically. But Mark makes it clear that the man God, fully God, fully man, died on that cross. Why is that so important? Because only God was perfect, the perfect sacrifice who could die and take on the sins of the whole world once for all. Only God could do that, could carry the sins of the whole world, past, present, future. Only a perfect God could set us free free from sin, unless Jesus truly died, none of us could be forgiven. Creation was shaken, Jesus forsaken, the world mistaken, Jesus' life was taken, and the Father's heart broke. The Father's heart broke. Verse 38, And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember in the temple... There was the outer court and then the holy place and then the holy of holies behind the veil where no one could go except the high priest. And what we see here is the veil being torn from top to bottom. Now that represents access. We'll talk about that in a moment. But What did a grieving father do in biblical times when he was grieving when his heart was broken? He tore his robe from top to bottom. The temple represents the very heart of God, the very presence of God on earth, and he tore his robe in agony as his son is dying on the cross. It's a picture of God's incredible grief over the death of his beloved son. Now, some theologies would say, well, the Old Testament God, the, that God, Father guy, I mean, he's an angry God. And on the cross, he's pouring out his wrath on Jesus. He's angry at his son. Well, I don't believe that. I think that's a wrong theology. Because what we see 
is a father who is heartbroken, who is grieving as a holy God. He must judge sin, but he's heartbroken over sin. He's heartbroken over what his son is going through as he rends his very garments in pain. You see, the father chose to break his own heart out of love for you and for me. Creation was shaken. Jesus forsaken. The world was mistaken. Jesus' life was taken. Father's heart broke, but through all that, mankind was reconciled. Because the veil does picture separation. You see, in that Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go into that Holy of Holies one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to make atonement for the nation. But he had to be pure. Everything had to be right. In fact, the people would tie a rope around his ankle in case he did something wrong and God zapped him in there and he died. They wouldn't have to go in there. They could just pull his lifeless body out of the Holy of Holies. It was a place that no one had access to, the very presence of God. The veil was the sign of separation, but when Jesus died, that veil was torn by God from top to bottom. The way was laid open. Access was given into the very presence of the heart of God. Hebrews chapter 10 describes it this way, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, the way is now open for us to enter, for every human on earth to enter into the very presence of God. The the cross opened the door. But we must choose to believe in Jesus, right? We don't have access to God unless we accept it. We receive him to trust that he opened the way for us. We enter by faith and we trust him to cleanse us from the sin that he's already forgiven us for. Did you notice the order in Hebrews chapter 10? You come to him and he cleanses you from an unclean conscience and washes your body. You come to him first. We get that backwards, don't we? We think I've got to clean up my act and then I can come to him. But no, the way of God is I've made access. Walk in, come. And if you come, I will cleanse your heart your soul, your body. Only those who come in faith come into his presence. It's as if every human being has been given a key to a new house. And it's ours. But if you keep that key in your pocket and never walk into that house, you never experience life in that house. Every human being has been given a key. Jesus died for all. But we have to take that key by faith and open that door, unlock it, and walk through that door. The key does nothing for you unless you use it. Mankind was reconciled. Finally, Jesus was confirmed as God. 
Verse 39, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This statement is the climax of the entire book of Mark. A Gentile, a centurion who helped crucify Jesus, who oversaw the whole process, watches Jesus die, sees something that moves his life and declares Jesus to be the Son of God, to be divine, to be God himself. You see, so far in the book of Mark, no man has declared Jesus to be the Son of God. Only God has. Remember, this is my beloved son at the baptism, at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And demons have declared Jesus to be the son of God. In chapter 3, it says he cast out many demons and they kept saying, you're the son of God. And he said, shh. (laughs) The world's not ready to understand, but now they're ready. And the Gentile a centurion declares him to be the Son of God, to be God himself. The kingdom is in broken into this world. It's come through. And for the Roman people, this had to be a huge deal because they had many man-gods in their pantheon. Great heroes who showed power and defeated their foes. And this centurion, of course, knew that. He worshipped many of these gods. But as he watches Jesus die on the cross, he realizes there's something different here. What did the centurion see in Jesus' death that changed his worldview forever about who God is? He saw a God who chose to suffer for us. He saw a God who chose defeat, who chose weakness, who was like a lamb led to slaughter, who in humility acted out of love, who chose to be on that cross. And only the Holy Spirit could reveal this to him. But when he saw Jesus die, he said, now this is God. All that other stuff I've been taught, that's not God. This is God. Only a God could die for me. That must be what God is really like. Brothers and sisters, only the true God would die for us. Only God could love this much. The cross is the greatest event in all of human history. What happened on the cross? Creation itself was shaken. Jesus was forsaken. The world, like always, was mistaken. Jesus was taken. The Father's heart broke. Mankind was reconciled. And Jesus was confirmed as God himself. You see, the cross revealed to the world who God really is, to a world trapped in darkness. But the cross only has impact on your life, my friends, if you choose to believe it for yourself. If you choose to believe that The cross really does open the access to God. It really does cover my sin. Jesus substituted himself for me. He took my place. And now I come to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And as I come and bow down before him as my God, behold, this man was the Son of God. And when we bow before him, 
the doorway is open and we walk through. If you have never walked through that door, you may have been at church for 40 years, but if you've never walked through that door, do it today. There is no other way, as Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The cross is our only way. And for us as believers, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what kind of God we serve, we all have false views of God based on our backgrounds and our views of our Father and what we've been told by culture and all kinds of things. But if you really want to know what God's like, look at, meditate on the cross. It's the most complete picture of the holiness and the incredible, amazing love of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we think about your heart being broken as you watched your son die, we thank you for doing that, for sending your son that we might not perish but have everlasting life. To be willing to have your heart broken for us, Lord Jesus, thank you that you are willing to endure the cross, that you chose it for me, for us, for each person in this room. In fact, for every person who's ever lived or will live. Holy Spirit, open our eyes of our hearts that we might worship you more deeply as our eyes are open to the glory of the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.